In the streets of Laredo I walked out in Laredo one day I spied a poor cowboy Wrapped up in white linen All wrapped in white linen As cold as the clay I see by your outfit That you are well, hello. Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, we'll be digging deeper into the letters uh, written uh, by HP Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, specifically uh, those from July 1932 to September 1932. So um, this, I'm getting this all from A Means to Freedom, which is a two-volume collection of, of including all the letters that are extant between um, between Lovecraft and Howard. And I have to say, this is like a pretty solid piece of scholarship. I, I think the footnotes could have been more extensive. Like if I were to edit this, I would have probably gone a little bit deeper into some of the ideas. I mean, there's name references and things in book references in the notes. But I think there's like certain concepts and ideas that are talked about that maybe could have been explored a little bit more in the footnotes. But that aside, there's a lot of research in this in this collection, not just in the footnotes, but in the you know, in finding out which letters were missing, um, in you know, in just putting it all together for us. I think it's 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 a solid solid work. There's a little bit of editing, like some things are cut here and there but uh, mostly it's unabridged. So it, I think it's worth checking out. It's Hippocampus Press put it together, and I think they're doing a lot of collections of these types of, of his letters. You know, Lovecraft wrote so many letters to so many people that, you know, it, it might be a, a useful investment. I think this, this wasn't too expensive for the two volumes. So I don't know. If you want, get them. I, you know, it's not the kind of thing you're going to find at the library, you know. Your average public library, research library might have it, but uh, most probably won't even have this. So it's one of those things. If you're researching H.P. Lovecraft, you might just have to go and get those. And unfortunately, I'll probably have to get some more of the letter collections as well. But anyways, um, so I'm going to do, do doing nine episodes on this. I've already done three. So we're, we're not quite to the halfway point, but we're um, we're getting there. Um, and and anyways, it's at this point in the conversation. Like I, I kind of complained in the last episode how the, 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 their kind of conversation sort of died down and a lot of it was just back and forth response to what the previous person wrote. That continues a little bit here, but I have to say by the end of 32 or by the fall of 32, by September, even in August, their conversation starts to get more intense and you can really feel it. Now, they're still polite to each other, but you can see they're really beginning to butt heads on some of their major disagreements. And we kind of know what they are already. If you've been reading through these, you kind of get what they are really about barbarism versus civilization. Right. Um, and the values of both. That's really and the kind of freedom, I guess, what it comes down to. That's why the title they're drawing it. I, I'm not sure who writes this. It might be a it might be a Howard quote, but it means to freedom, right? So it's about freedom, but it's also about like civilization and the values of barbarism versus the values of civilization, and it really starts to get more contentious here. And there there's times when they're like 
like kind of fighting a little bit and, and that that certainly comes up later um, and you actually see some both writers kind of step back from some of their comments it really makes I have to say though this really makes Howard seem a much more flexible much more reflective much in some ways just a a better critical thinker than Lovecraft could be. I mean, Lovecraft is was so blinkered by his prejudices, and I'm not just meaning racism here. That's that's kind of the, in some ways, the least of it in this regard. It, he's just blinkered by his his prejudices towards like Rome and you know civilization in the 18th century, and this idea that you know barbarism is not valuable right and and howard doesn't really ever say like oh it's the only way is barbarism he's just saying there's value there right and it shows him as just more of a reflective flexible um thinker than than lovecraft of course lovecraft's older and when people are older they tend to get more set in their ways um but as we've kind of seen i think lovecraft's always been that way when he was howard's age uh or this whatever age howard was when he wrote these or late 20s Mid twenties, no, I think it would have been late twenties by this point. But he's he was already pretty set in his ways, right? His ideas aren't that significantly different. You know, I know we can point out some things that evolved over time, but it's a lot of the same ideas. So, anyways, anyways, this is where it kind of gets more exciting. If you're if you're reading through letter by letter like I am, and you're kind of like, ugh, in the last, you know, in that that. I'm talking about like early 32. That conversation is kind of boring. Uh, there was like the Massey case and things like that. But it gets a lot more fascinating here, I think. So where we'll pick up is with a July 13th, uh, 1932 letter um, by Howard to Lovecraft. He starts out by apologizing. He didn't get to meet him. And he talks about his financial issues. Because when not, Lovecraft was like in New Orleans on his southern trip. I guess, you know, Howard was going to meet him and he never did. Um, but he did introduce him to Price. And of course, that relationship would be very fruitful in, in Lovecraft's career. But you can tell Howard kind of regrets not having the chance to meet um, to meet Lovecraft. Um, but uh, then he kind of gets into uh, what's going to be kind of an important theme here. And that is like he kind of jumps into this barbarism stuff a little bit. And he kind of combines in being impressed with Alexandria and a kind of fascination with barbarism. Both of the things would trigger Lovecraft because, you know, Lovecraft kind of didn't like he thought barbar he didn't think barbarism was necessarily totally uncreative or bad. He just thought it's a it's it limits the potential of a people if they stay as barbarians and don't settle down and build their cities and all that. But at the same time, he thought Alexandria was this kind of hybrid, hybridized mongrelization, this Alexandrian kind of a mongrelization. I think that's the term he uses somewhere in his letters. Um, but Howard kind of dug both of these in different ways. Um, you know, talking about the Turk here, he says, they came out of the steppes wandering, fighting nomads who gained their living by following the flocks and plundering their fellow man. They imposed their wills on hordes of country folk who did the work for them. The Turk has always scorned all labor but that of war. And what fighters they are. They are the one people who decay and degeneration is not robbed of their pristine warlike heritage. History does not show a race, not even the Romans or Spartans who can boast of such consistent courage. So there's a lot of kind of praising of, of the barbarian there. And this is the kind of stuff Lovecraft is going to end up responding to pretty forcefully. 
Um, now he's starting into politics. This is toward, obviously towards the end of 1932, and there's election in November 1932. So he's starting to follow that, and you start to get a little bit back and forth on the politics. Neither of these are really party loyalists in any sense. Howard being from the South, it's, it's going to it's a democratic region, right? It's, it's kind of still a one-party state in most of the South. So, you know, they vote Democratic usually. The Republican Party was pretty weak by that point in the South, you know, because of the end of Reconstruction and all that history you, you probably know. But he, he's kind, he, you know, he, he follows the, the politics. And this, so this is during the demographic, Democratic Convention when Roosevelt was put forward as the nominee and Garner was put forth as the vice president. And, um, you know, and he sees John Garner as kind of a, a man of the people. So he would be, a, he, he did become vice president, of course, and he would be vice president until 41 when uh, Wallace takes over. And I think after Wallace is Truman, of course. And he talks about other kind of uh, Southern politics a little bit. So, uh, you know, unless you know that kind of local Southern politics, you're probably going to glaze over some of these parts. But um, he's definitely got a more of a populist taint, I think, in his, his, his political vision. And then he jumps back into a lot of his conversations about the South overall, when it's not like political like this, uh, and even to some degree when it is, orients around violence um, and crime and things like that. We've already seen this in there back and forth, a lot of talk about Southern banditry and bank robbers and gunfighters and all that kind of stuff, kind of the Wild West stuff. And he's pretty, uh, he almost makes like an all cops or bastard argument eventually here, as we'll see, which is kind of wild. Let's say it's fun to watch. Because uh, the thing that triggers Lovecraft, I, I, having been in Lovecraft's head for so long, for so many uh, months at this point, I, I do get a lot, I do get a little pleasure out of seeing him really flustered by, by uh, Howard's mind, you know, the more he learned about Howard and the way he thought about things. But anyways, um, yeah, there, he kind of talks about a violent subculture in, 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 in the Southwest. And eventually Lovecraft's going to say, like, is just everyone killing each other in the Southwest? And he kind of says, well, not really. I'm just talking about a subculture, right? It's just some people. The majority of the people just sort of go about their business. And he says, even me, I've gotten to be a few brawls, but basically I just kind of live my life too, right? But he does say pacifism is kind of a dead end, right? Um, but, but he just says, you know, pacifists, people who don't get into fights, they also kind of tend to live longer and they, you know, the real bullies don't last that long. Um, what else? I, I'm not going to repeat too much of things they come back to, like fate. Comes, he comes back to talk a little bit more about fate and accident. I mentioned that in the last episode. Um, but what's new is kind of new here is they start to get in a, a long back and forth about alcohol. And um, I, I think Howard begins this more or less. Maybe something, maybe Lovecraft said something. Um, I'm not sure, but I don't quite remember every word. But this is like the first significant long conversation we have about alcohol here. Um and just like I, I think with so many of these things, Howard just seems to have a much more healthy relationship with with things, whether it's alcohol or violence or politics or 
or folklore or immigration. You know, they do share some ideas, but I, I just find Howard so much more healthy and open-minded about these things. And, and it's certainly the case with alcohol because he partook in alcohol and, you know, Lovecraft didn't, right? Lovecraft was a teetotaler who, as far as I know, you know, barely ever lifted, never, never got drunk as far as I know. Maybe he did. And that's why he turned away from it or he's one of those people who got drunk once and never touched it again. But Howard was someone who socially drank and he says, like, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not married to it. Like, I, there's been long periods of my life where I didn't drink. But but it's it's part of social life, right? Same thing kind of with smoking, I guess. These are social customs and social habits. Maybe I guess smoking in the United States sort of died down. I I, I don't see much of it outside of, you know, outside of bars. But in, in China still, it's still very much a, a social custom. Men are always passing around cigarettes to one another. You just meet someone on the street and talk for a few minutes. They'll give you a cigarette sometimes. And they have to be good cigarettes, right? Or else it's kind of a loose face or whatever. But anyways, they, they, you know, this is during the Prohibition time. And I guess that's where the connection to their conversation is. Like the Democrats by this point, I think, promised to end Prohibition if they won. So people are kind of looking to the end of Prohibition at this point. It's, it's kind of like a failed policy. And, and so he gets into a little bit about Prohibition and crime and things like that. Um, and all that. But um, it's, it's a pretty long conversation about it. Uh, how it connects to crime. Um, but eventually, you know, Lovecraft's going to respond like drinking is just horrible and you shouldn't do it. And then Howard says, well, you kind of got to contextualize culturally and socially drink. Right. And you got to kind of know what you're talking about before you totally uh, reject it out of hand. But he does think prohibition is feeding crime, which I think most people sort of agree with now. Um, he says, I'll, I'll bet if prohibition still continues in force that the moonshiners and bootleggers will swarm around the shores because the whole lake is surrounded by rugged hills covered with dense thickets and arms of lake run up into the gorge and inlets where boats of contraband can be concealed. I look for stirring times and in the amusement centers along the shore too when the hill people come down and get their first look at them the little liquor to liven things up and the knives are likely to start humming if things pick up some of my friends and i intend to put up a shack in the lake shore in some more or less isolated spot where we can fish swim drink without interference end quote that's what he's saying if like if prohibition continues that's what he'll do um yeah, that's about it. We got a little bit more on folkways. We got a little bit more on Japan and Japanese uh, and, you know, Pacific conflict, the, the, the brewing Pacific conflict. But um, but that's uh, that's that letter. It's a good one. It's, there's a lot of fun in this one. So this is followed by a, a pretty short um, letter to, to Howard by Lovecraft. It was written in um, while he's uh, on a boat. Uh, in the Atlantic, so uh, I guess he's on his way home. Um, so it's not very long. He doesn't respond to everything. It's dated July twenty fifth, um, nineteen thirty two. So it doesn't respond. It's just written like a little bit over a week later um, from the the Howard letter. But it doesn't it doesn't respond to everything he wrote. For that, we're gonna have to wait a little bit. But it's it's more uh, perfunctory, I guess. Um, but uh, you know, he really kind of doubles down on the importance of, I guess, civilized cultures here, especially because 
Howard's like, I'm really fascinated by the Oriental cultures. And by this, he means like Babylonians and like Mesopotamia and the Middle Ages. And, and Lovecraft's like, that's wild. Why, why would anyone like those places? He says, we're precisely the opposite in our reactions to the classical Greco-Roman world, for it seems to be the only real and understandable period in history except the present. Uh, the Middle Ages and the early Oriental cultures seem very vague and unreal to me. The Greeks and Romans were in the main wholly modern in spirit, end quote. Um, and by modern here, I think he means like 19th century enlightenment kind of modern, not not the modern of his time, not, not the machine culture kind of modern that he's so paranoid about. Um, and then he goes on a little bit about like the Greeks and the Romans and their spirit and their their how honorable they were and their different morality and why, you know, that, that should be the proper kind of goal of, of, of the human. Um, uh, what else do we got here? He, he talks a little bit more about crime and this was a common thing in these letters where Howard would talk about crime in the Southwest and then, or talk about something in the Southwest and then Lovecraft would say, that's fascinating. Let me tell you about what it's like up here, which is, you know, when these conversations are the most fruitful, I guess, is when you are kind of expanding each other's uh, knowledge um, and get to know what's in their head a little bit more. And, and he says, you know, kind of the East never had the pioneer stage, which I don't think is quite right. I, I wouldn't, you know, if you read like Bernard Balin's The People in British North America, he talks a lot about like the marshland, uh, which is like the, you know, a marsh is a march, sorry, not a march, a march is of course like a like kind of a frontier territory um and he talks about the, the atlantic colonies of the british as a marchland right so it's like a, a forward place far from the metropole where ideas and cultures could kind of be divergent in fact slavery itself is an example of frontier lawlessness and you can say oh stop there look slavery was legal yeah it was but it was not something being done that often in england at the time it was something they exported, the cruelty of it. It was legal, but it was not something that most British wanted at home if they could avoid it. There was some slavery there, but not much. And they exported the violence of it there. Had that, had the violence of Atlantic slavery been taking place in London, I bet you, yeah, you can bet there would have been an abolition movement, you know, pretty strong. Um, now, of course, what happened in America is, you know, that culture kind of grew up with slavery, right? It was integrally connected to it. The very concept of American freedom was tied to slavery, of course. Uh, who wrote that? Edmund S. Morgan's book, American Slavery, American Freedom. Well recommended. Um, so I don't think he's right. My point is I don't think he's right that there wasn't a pioneer stage. You wouldn't call it, like the, it's not the pioneer stage the way we think of like the 1840s Kentucky or or 1860s Kansas or something like that. But it, it was a frontier epoch, I guess. But he's kind of saying, maybe this means, this is why they're not so much, there's not violence there. And he says, really, if you want violence out here, it's the poor whites and immigrants. And, you know, kind of what you'd expect him to say about that. Um, now, he does, you can tell he sort of gets triggered by the, by the, alcohol thing because he says your reminiscence of alcohol vicissitudes are certainly colorful in the extreme especially that the christian party which co coincided so inflexulously with the bandit raid for my part i've never been able to figure out why people seem to find artificial paradise of alcohol excitement so necessary to their happiness i'm 42 and i never touch alcohol like liquor in any form nor do i ever intend to you know i don't feel any dearth of color or interest in the world around end quote 
So I guess he was, you know, if you take him honestly here, he never picked up a drink. Uh, never a glass of wine or something? I don't know what he actually means by that. Maybe he, never, he means he never got drunk. But he says alcoholic or maybe not whiskey. He never had a beer? Uh, anyways, whatever the truth is about that, it doesn't really matter. He's saying you don't need this at all to enhance your life. And I would say... I guess in a in a chemical sense that may be true, right? And we shouldn't. It's best if we don't need alcohol to like make life interesting, but it certainly enhances our, our like social life at times. I think. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just the alcoholic here, and I, I'm not necessarily trying to defend alcohol. I just think he's so uh, so tunnel visioned at times. You know, he's not even open to the idea that that alcohol can give people experiences. You know, I was just talking to a friend about, you know, William James's idea of religious experiences, you know, and some religions use drugs, right? Uh, like the peyote stuff and among Native Americans. Um, those are real experiences, right, that people have religious or, you know, whether they're induced by chemicals or meditation or prayer or whatever, there's something real there. Um, so I don't know. Anyways, it's a pretty short letter, um, but written on the way back to, to New England. Then we have uh, Howard's response on August 9th, uh, 1932. And this is another long letter, so um, be, be prepared. Yeah, it's along 30, 20 pages or so. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to talk about everything in this letter because a lot of it is just responses. But uh, he does kind of say here, you're when I'm talking about violence in the Southwest, I'm really talking about a subculture. So he says, don't think that that's just like everyday life, that people are running around shooting up the place constantly. Um, and he says, you know, Texas really has to maybe we can think about California in the same way or or some other areas. You know, you got to you got to understand it not as just a state but as kind of a, he calls it an empire on its own. It, it really is a diverse multicultural region, right? In another level, the tower, Texas would be, would be its own independent state, right? And it was for a time, right? It's only an independent country. And it was actually Southern slaveholders who kind of wanted to incorporate that in the United States after their revolution against Mexico. I guess they kind of insinuated, they started that revolution. So if it wasn't for them, you know, they, that Texan revolt never have happened. But, you know, they always had the intention of rejoining the United States eventually. That's my understanding of it anyways. But um, nevertheless, it, it is that it does have that diversity. Like East and West Texas, very different. South and North, quite different in terms of ethnicity and, and uh, cultural values and things like that. And I think it's still true today. So he's like, you know, you might find cities as sophisticated and cultured and educated as any city out east, but you're also going to find these these more marginal areas and frontier re regions and things like that. So um, then he kind of gets talking about like something they, they start going back and forth on a little bit here, too, is the concept of the outsider or the alien or this kind of ties to the question of fate. They're getting and of course Lovecraft writes about outsiders, outside entities, outside uh, creatures. And Howard here is saying, you know, I'm kind of open to the possibilities of there being 
he says outsiders or aliens. He doesn't necessarily mean here just like like flying saucer aliens, but some kind of external force, right? And this is another thing that Lovecraft is kind of, at least on the, in, in his letters, pretty close-minded about. As open as he is about this stuff in his stories, he's pretty upfront that these are just his stories. They're not. It's not based on any actual reality. It's just kind of a metaphor for the unknowability of the universe. But there's not there's not uh, outside forces in a way. Which, if it's so unknowable, how do you know what's not there? I guess he's. I think there's a contradiction there in Lovecraft's thinking, perhaps. Um, but anyways, uh, he makes a long here defense of of alcohol. The one of several defenses of alcohol consumption as kind of a cultural thing. He says. Um, I have no doubt that my that the absolute prohibition of the stuff would make for better conditions, especially among the upper classes, to those who ease the laborer, to whose ease the laborer can contribute the time he wastes drowning his sorrows to drink. Personally, I regret the noble experiment. I was once an ardent prohibitionist. I liked my damn, but I was willing to sacrifice my taste for society. That's to say, the upper classes who are society, as far as I can make out. Now, what he's getting at here is. Maybe prohibition is a very bougie, improperly a bougie goal. Like if you're part of the upper class, or if you're part of the, the American aristocracy, and you have access to all the pleasures of life and education and things like that, fine, don't drink. You know, your life's not going to be improved by it, and your life may be worsened by it, right? But for the people who are like working all day, they kind of, they need that to kind of unwind, right? And I don't know if that's a wrong position to take on this. I think there's there's certainly, you know, it's kind of a cultural argument for drink. Like if in certain parts of the country, in certain contexts, alcohol becomes a, a social glue in a way, right? And also maybe a coping mechanism. And that's maybe not a good thing if we had, we could have another conversation if we had like socialism and you know, drudgery was alleviated and we had robots doing all this crappy work. Maybe we could have another, we could open up this conversation again about whether people should use alcohol to cope. But, you know, he's kind of saying it, it has that function. Um, anyways, he does admit, though, that it's, it's not creating exaltation. The, like the highest human experiences aren't coming from alcohol. It's not Howard's argument here. And I think Lovecraft is kind of saying, yeah, you can reach higher levels of human experience just by through ideas and study and philosophy and history and all that. And, and Howard's saying, sure, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, um, you know, like the working class and you know, using this as a coping mechanism, I think. So he actually names drops a book I love. I actually did an episode, episodes on this book, maybe two episodes, maybe just one, I, I forget. But way back early in this podcast on John Barleycorn by Jack London. And if you read this book, which I do recommend, you, whether you're a teetotaler or not, I think London makes a similar argument about alcohol being sort of a cultural thing. And not, not everyone's going to respond to alcohol the same way, but... The reason people drink is, is social bonding in a way. Or at least people, the reason people, we, the reason people get into it is not necessarily the taste or even the, the experience of being a drunk. It's the, the social glue, right? I mean, I still remember some of my first experiences drinking, right? Um, so anyways, yeah, here he gets, here's where he gets to class. Um, 
on page 342 of my version. I guess this is the only version you get these in. But uh, Rich men, people of the upper classes, mental workers, they have no need for liquor and possibly no right to it. But I say that the workhorse, the laboring man, has a right to anything that will brighten his hellish existence a little, even though that brightening be of elusive and lying gleam of drink, and that no man uh, and no class of man has any right to deprive him of it. Drowned in drink, he can forget the miseries of the weeks past and the miseries of the week and the weeks and the years to come. Uh, to say that men are born free and equal is merely one of the trite and inane epigrams of the ruling classes. Most men are caught in a triple clinch before they're born. They can't better it a lot, and in God's name, let them forget it as much as they can. Yeah, I, I don't find much to disagree with. In that, uh, maybe he does sort of reduce the working class here to kind of a, a more animalistic existence, which isn't necessarily fair, but the fact that drudgery and endless toil exists is certainly true and 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 given lack of other means of coping stronger societies um, social engagement of a more meaningful basis and then you don't deny alcohol as well on top of that right anyways uh no howard asked a question in the previous letter about like why was it that the normans who are like Vikings. And basically he says like, aren't the Normans Vikings? And so why are some branches of this kind of Viking culture today much more like, like barbarian, you know, still culturally compared to like the Normans who become much more civilized, right? They're much more like French, Frenchified, I think. And this is maybe a kind of a reductionist description of these people, but whatever he says like what is it and and i think lovecraft said something like well it's like latin culture sort of tamed the normans in a way and then he kind of he kind of leads this drinking conversation into these cultural things saying you know there are these cultures that are just better at fighting and drinking and eating and and all that um even even Muslims, listen to this. But the readers pounced to the point that I expected. I think he wrote somewhere about Muslims drinking, and someone said Muslims don't drink. Uh, so he says the Mohammed, the matter of Mohammedan drunkards. They maintain that according to the Quran, Muslims never drank. Wright admitted in the Suk that the Quran forbade litter, but went on to quote in long, a long extract from Chilvajo's memoirs to prove that Timur and his Tartars drank to excess. So he's kind of seen drinking as even not just a class thing, but even a, a kind of a cultural uh, tension. So this is a really long letter, as I suggested, but he, he kind of flip, flips back to some personal reflections on the Southwest, some of the best stuff in his letters, obviously. Uh, he talks about meeting a communist organizer, uh, a Slovene. And he, I think his point about this is sort of that he was kind of interested in his kind of his immigrant culture in a way and you see right here in this conversation about this slovene communist organizer that although both are kind of nativist in their own ways love lovecraft doesn't like try to get into the heads of immigrants very much he's just kind of got his ideas about them howard seems kind of fascinated by these immigrant cultures in a way that lovecraft doesn't want to waste his time doing listen to this the young man had keen, dark eyes and a highly intelligent type of face. Nothing of the Slavic dreamer about him. He had poise and alertness and an air of versatility nowadays inferior to the Latin, yet definitely not Latin. A fantastic conceit came to me as our mutual friend did most of the conversing that passed among us. I thought of the alien hordes that swarmed into Rome before its fall and who no doubt 
at least those from the east, were superior in adaptability and versatility to the native Romans, as these new aliens are superior to our native stock. Possibly this very chap's Dacian ancestors mixed with Greeks were undermining the empire with their, with their wiles from within, while our more straightforward ancestors, yours and mine, were smashing the lines from without and from the other direction. End quote. So, so nice. Um, I mean, so reflective. I mean, not just seeing it in this binary terms of bar. I mean, he's kind of making the winking point. It's like, you know, we were barbarians, right? Our ancestors. If you're taking this Teutonic Anglo-Saxon sort of identity, yeah, you were the barbarians at one point. Your culture was the barbarian culture. You weren't the Romans, right? But maybe this Slovene, he's kind of, you know, he's on the border. And maybe their ancestors were... We're on the other side of it, right? It's so, it's it's so beautiful, I think. Um, but oh, I I just I, I really enjoyed this. But he also at the same time says like these guys are going to be foreigners. They're not going to understand Bunker Hill, or the Battle of New Orleans, or Gettysburg, or, or anything like this. These are going to be outside his own experiences. Um, and then he, he kind of mentions how this guy's trying to organize Mexicans to be communist. And was frustrated by the Mexicans' lack of kind of commitment to the struggle. So that's uh, that's a really fun conversation. It's on page three forty-five to three forty-six. Um, what else do we have here? More on violence. He talks about like being part of a carnival and how carnies were fighting like the local cops and also local towns because when the carnival would come into town, the local people, you know would sometimes put together mobs to scare them off or whatever because they were seen as kind of exploiting, kind of, you know, a, a dubious thing. People wanted to go to the carnival, but at the same time, the carnival was seen as in, in kind of a bad light. So that was kind of a fun thing. Um, but anyways, now we get to it. We get to Howard becoming like an all-cops-are-bastard position here. Um, because, I mean, basically he's saying like, Police violence is a serious problem. A uh, yeah, hundred years before, we were talking about these same things. And he's talking about like the grilling of prisoners, how violence would be used to grill prisoners. And he says, basically, this is unacceptable. And, you know, if, if this is the choice, I'm going to be on the side of the criminals. In a way. Um, and how we like there's this police overreaction to crime. Um, and all this kind of stuff. And he talks about how a lot of the violence in the West was opposed to this aggressive violence and aggressive force of the police. Again, things that I think uh, we think about today in the context of Black Lives Matter or whatever. So listen to this. He says, John Wesley Hardin was the prime law killer in the Southwest. Conditions helped to make him a bad man, just as the case of the James boy. I won't add... Quantrell, as many do. The old tale you hear in the Southwest about the Jayhawkers of Kansas murdering Quantrell's brother and leaving the poor lad, Quantrell himself lying naked and wounded on the prairie, having laywayed the boys on the way from Baltimore to California. That tale, I say, is a lot of baloney. Quantrell never had a brother, as far as I can learn. And he wasn't from Maryland. He was born in Ohio. He made up the yarn that the Southerner, when he decided at last to toss his lot among them. He was a Jayhawker before he was a gorilla. And the men who say he held commission in the Confederate Army was a liar. The Southerners would have hanged him just as quick as the Federals would have. End quote. Anyways, he gets on this conversation about um, them. But I think the heart of what he's getting at is like the, a lot of these criminals were made by uh, 
by police um, by the law. It's like a dialectic relationship, right? It's uh, they they fed each other in a way. Um, some really nice, thoughtful uh, reflections on the West overall here as well. Um, seeing the West as really kind of a divide across the American co continent with its own kind of culture and identity, um, its own histories. And, and you know, for such a young man, who's, he's thought so much about the place he lived. It's, it's really kind of fascinating to dig into this. Um, Indian Wars, he gets to all these wonderful things. Um, so, what's up? Not much else to say about this letter. A little bit on, on weird fiction. He gets into weird fiction. Um, he kind of criticizes writers in, in writing in journals or magazines like Oriental Tales, which, of course, Howard wrote in for kind of glorifying Oriental monarchs. Um, at least that's how he puts it, Oriental monarchs. Uh, comparing them to the Western rulers, he thinks you shouldn't do that or see them as the same thing. And he's kind of emphasized cultural difference. Um, but also, I think his heart's with the barbarians out there. He's interested in those cultures, but his heart's with the barbarians and the, not the kings. So that's that's why he's sort of saying that, I guess. So another wonderful Howard letter. Jeez, every, it's like the, the great, really memorable letters here tend to be Howard's. I mean... I, I've read so many Lovecraft letters recently or parts of Lovecraft letters that uh, it's so refreshing to see such a different thinker. Someone who's just, I don't know, there's just so much more heart to his letters, I have to say. Like, let's talk about this next one. August 16th, 1932. Lovecraft's response to all this. And this is going to be, really, I'm just going to talk about two more letters, I think. Um, and they're both really long. Um, but here's where the conversation starts to, I don't want to say derailed, but it becomes a little bit more nasty in some ways. Now, obviously, these are grown-ups, and they can disagree and still be friends or whatever. But they, it does get a little heated here at this point. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think he's, he jumps right out with this, saying, it's like, you're wrong about the barbarians. And that's going to be, the, I think, the heart of their whole debate here, and what we're going to be talking about for much of the rest of this, this podcast. Um, here's what he says. The barbarian, when the, where the barbarians had only a few simple motives and pleasures and used only a small fraction of his heritage as a highly evolved primate, the civilized man had the infinitely vaster variety of stimuli and rewards which accrued from a more all-around development of his capacities. The exaltation of the spirit of physical structure to a primary and supreme value is obviously a purely artificial and temporary attitude. Um... And he says this is basically not what humans strive for. It's just limiting. It's, it's not necessarily 100% bad, but it is a limited experience and not worthy of, of intellectuals like us, I guess. Um, and he kind of admits maybe I'm seeing history through this kind of Roman eyes, but he says it doesn't mean he thinks he's wrong about it. Um, now, why, where does this come from? I think we know. And he sort of says it here, too. But we, we've read enough of his philosophy to know. It's like what civilizations have that the barbarians don't. It's like a permanent 
enduring culture, a culture that you can kind of pass on to your children and carry on. It's because this is what's going to be our boat in the cosmic ocean. And so he even says, like, blood is not as important here as culture. Right. And that's the kind of a conceit he's he, that that is one place where I think Lovecraft sort of evolved in his earlier writings. He did think more in terms of blood uh, and soil. And later he's thinking a little bit more in terms of culture. Right. Which is, of course, tied to soil, maybe a little bit, too. And, and and there is a little bit of that, but it's not so much the blood as the culture, the cultural heritage that gets passed down. And that's what civilization has that barbarians don't have. And you know what? He's probably right here. I, I think. You know, a lot of people who study nomadic cultures emphasize their cultural flexibility. James Scott talks about this in his new book, Against the Grain. A lot of people have written about the relationship between barbarians and nomads or nomads and civil, sedentary civilizations in China. have emphasized like the flexible cultural identities that there wasn't like, like when you say Mongols, it's well, Mongols was a a temporary identity that emerged and what it means to be a Mongol now is different throughout time and, and throughout history. So these are flexible, like Manchu identity really emerges once they conquer the Ming and become a Chinese empire. Then they start to say, well, now we need to create our own culture. Before that, Manchu identity was pretty dubious. Um, and people would come and go, right, and, and join different groups and, and change their cultural identity and their loyalty. It's kind of like prison gangs or something. So I think he's right about that. It's just what he's wrong about is that we necessarily need to have a permanent culture. I think that's actually quite limiting, restrictive, and it has its own kind of violence, um, you know, and enforcement and limitations. So this all kind of uh, work piqued him, piqued Lovecraft a little bit. And then so when he gets into this conversation about outsiders, he kind of overreacts, I think, to what Howard was saying. Howard's just saying, like, I'm kind of open to the idea of maybe outside forces and... He kind of slaps them down for something that seems a pretty innocuous comment, uh, in my opinion. Um, there is no evidence whatsoever for the existence of the supernatural. And then he highlights, and where no positive evidence exists, it's mere pedantry to continue to take an extravagant and gratuitous improbability seriously merely for the lack of definite negative evidence. Theoretically, the improbability may be possible. But the chances are so overwhelming, infinitesimal, that they can well rank as negligible. It's like, yeah, I, I don't disagree with Lovecraft about this, but I kind of appreciate Howard's open-mindedness on this on this issue. But I think he was piqued by the previous stuff, and he really comes down hard on this issue. And then he goes to the alcohol thing, and he's just as kind of nasty and cantankerous. And, and, and the, the alcohol stuff is, is more ridiculous because he doesn't really know what he's talking about. He, he can't converse with Howard on his own terms because Howard is saying, look, I drink and I with people who drink and I kind of understand its cultural dynamics and its social dynamics. And Lovecraft's like, I'm from three or four generations of non-drinkers and I'm proud of it. And, you know, temperance, my culture is temperance or whatever. And But he still seems to be able to reject out of hand the the experiences that Howard is trying to describe of of actually of drink being part of a of a cultural milieu and then he just jumps to silly eugenic stuff saying the more drinks out and they get the worse their biological stock becomes that's just coming straight out of the the ridiculous uh, uh eugenicists of the time 
who believed in inherited traits and all that kind of stuff. So not a very flattering letter. It's interesting because it does elevate kind of the tension in their discourse, but it's just so clear that, that I mean, Lovecraft was super smart, but he's being kind of outclassed here in, in terms of just how reflective Howard is. But have you ever had these conversations? I mean, where you, I mean, I think I've had them where you're trying to look at things from multiple perspectives. I mean, this happened to me at a bar not long ago in the United States where, you know, I'm between, literally between two people, like one side are the anti-vaxxers, the other is a, a, a Biden boy. Uh, Trumpites versus Biden boys. And, and I was trying to, find some common ground i guess and i didn't say much in this conversation but i just felt literally that both sides were kind of really blinkered by their ideologies and i thought i was being kind of reflective and i just ended up pissing off both sides you know or you know whatever i said the trump the 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 trump supporter side just kind of got really nasty with me and i was like dude i wasn't saying you're wrong it's just like maybe we can look at it in this nuanced way or whatever which is not a good thing to do, I think. I must have been kind of drunk to even try to talk to these people. Uh, maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe drink is bad. It gets you into conversations with people you probably shouldn't be talking to. Anyways. Oh, then we got, we got Lovecraft going on about violence in the West, too. Frontier settlement, things like that. Oh, the police. He, he does respond to the police thing, too. And here's another uh, way, that, another place where they really diverge in their attitudes. Is he's kind of like, yeah, maybe some police violence is a little aggressive. Um, but it's the alternative. Letting criminals not be tortured until they cough up all, all they knew would be worse. He says, probably your position is right. For it certainly means peril to leave so much punitive latitude to minor officials with so little power of discrimination. And yet I can see the other side of the matter also. For nothing, for perhaps nothing less drastic than rough handling would ever serve to extract the truth from hardened and organized criminals. End quote. He's basically supporting you know, um, enhanced interrogation techniques uh, applied to uh, uh, your local criminals. Where's the bomb? Tell me where the bomb is. We're going to waterboard you. Poor Lovecraft. I mean, I just rather would be in Howard's mind, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. I think I think Lovecraft's mind, outside of his interesting stories, might be a kind of horrifying place to be. Um, he gets into, he kind of ends the letter talking about the bonus army. And here's another example of just him being so ridiculous he says you know he you know the bonus army was this protest by world war one veterans in 1932 in the context of the election where they were saying we want our promised bonus i think they're going to get the bonus like in the 40s or 50s later in their life it was like it was deferred payment right and they said we need it now because we're all unemployed and the economy's collapsed and i think like a Keynesian approach would say, yeah, this would have been a good idea. Give, 
use government spending to give these people money that'd be spent immediately it would have stimulated the economy a little bit right and of course roosevelt did eventually pass the bonus act after he became president but there's this big protest right where they were demanding this and they camped out in washington there's the march on washington and then eventually the u.s army was used to remove the these squatters from from washington streets was it a macarthur or someone like that was part of it anywho anyway that was the bonus army and what lovecraft says here is like not only do they not have a right to march on washington and demand something from government that's odious because even if they're he says even if they're right they shouldn't do it <laughs> because even if they're in the right you shouldn't do it this way because it just leads to like mob violence too much democracy right this is like the fear of the founders of of the mob or whatever really old-fashioned weird anti-democratic values here um but he says not only that like why are they even claiming they should have a bonus anyways they're lucky they even have a bonus whenever it was promised to them where is it um on the other hand so much was asked of those who actually did see service that some special preference or compensation is clearly a very graceful thing he says that but at the same time he says there's no debt there's actually no debt owed to these people because you know they got their wages this bonus thing is, so yeah, it's problematic whether the gift ought to ever have been promised. So maybe veterans deserve a little bit of, of, of bonus, but, you know, not really. It's like, geez, this guy has, doesn't seem to have a heart. He needs a, uh, he's like the Grinch sometimes. Anyways, enough of that letter. Uh, so one more I'm going to talk about here. There's a, there's a little, there's a couple little short notes here. I guess it's, uh, 21st of August, 22nd of September, where he talks about the fungi from Yugoth adaptation, the musical adaptation, um, by a Farnes. Remember we talked about that with, the the, in the letters. So that, um, so that's that. But what I want to end here is is pointing out a little bit in Howard's response to all this, um, because it, it was a it was a not a very flattering letter. It's now it's it was received on the twenty second of September. I don't think we have the date for it for its when it was penned. Um, but anyways, now it seems to me he starts out reflecting on some of the barbarian stuff, and he just says. You know, I wouldn't like I couldn't be moved. He kind of comes to this conclusion that you couldn't drop me now into like a barbarian culture and expect me to thrive. That's not what I'm saying. It's like, but if I could like reboot, you know, be reincarnated into a certain culture, I'd rather be in those cultures because they seem to offer more freedom and more, um, you know, a folder experience, something I'm lacking now. And I, I think that's really what Howard's trying to say here is that there are experiences I don't have, I don't have access to that I would like to have and I would like to reflect on. And Lovecraft is much more sane, right? Not only do I like not want to know about these these different kind of cultures, I'm going to end and just going to disparage them. It's like, I, I you know, he doesn't even really want to think about them, which I which was why I think Howard is just a much better mind in many ways 
Um, and he get, goes on this thing. He kind of goes into the philosophy of physicality a little bit. Um, and here's another area, like with drink, that I think uh, Lovecraft is a bit all classed. Um, just because Howard knows physical culture a little bit more, right? He knows the, you know, he knows what it's like to be in the prize ring or whatever. Listen to this. Yet when I look for the peak of my exultation, I find it on the sweltering breathless midnight when I fought a black-headed tiger of Oklahoma drifter in an abandoned ice vault in the stifling atmosphere laden with the tobacco smoke and the reek of sweat and rot gut whiskey and blood with a gang of cursing, blaspheming, oil-filled roughnecks from my audience. Even now the memory of that battle stirs the sluggish blood in my fat, lad and tissues. There was nothing about it calculated to advance art, science, or anything else. It was a bloody, merciless, brutal brawl. We fought for fully an hour until neither of us could fight any longer, and we reeled against each other, gasping incoherent curses through battered lips. No, there was nothing stimulating to the mental life of, of man about it. There was not even an excuse for it. We were fighting, not because there was a quarrel between us, but simply to see who was the best man. Yet I repeat that I get more real pleasure out of remembering that battle than I could possibly get out of contemplating the greater work of, greatest work of art ever accomplished, or seeing the greatest drama ever enacted, or hearing the greatest song ever sung. I repeat, I do not seek to justify my particular makeup, but there it is, quote. And yeah, I'm, I have no problem with anything he says here. You know who will, though? Um, and he goes on pretty philosophically about, about physicality and life and death and blood and blood, sweat, and tears. Um, what else? Um, yeah, better. Back on alcohol, he says, you're probably right that there are better ways of alleviating the working class than alcohol. But here's me jumping in. Well, what do you support? To do? What do you support that's actually going to do that, Mr. Lovecraft? Are you going to actually are you supporting socialism? Are you supporting, you know, uh, unions? What are you doing to, to help the working class? Don't just give us this bullshit about, well, there's better things to alleviate the working class than, than, than alcohol and not, not support actually those things. Jeez, you frustrate me sometimes. I know you're dead. Ah, what else? More on law and order. He's just kind of, I think he's, again, I, I love this letter because he's responding to everything pretty reflectively. And again, it's not, he says, I, I don't like criminals any more than you do, but there's a difference between a crime of passion or someone who's committing a crime to feed themselves and like a, a real person who's deep down just violent and antisocial. And maybe there's a role for policing in that, but, but treating everyone, I mean, this is what he's kind of foreshadowing. It's like the attitude of the police now treating everyone they encounter as a, as a, violent criminal is going to hurt them and maybe kill them is not a very healthy way to police i guess um yeah he even talks about here sympathy for resistance things like the bonus army or whatever um you know western farmers rising up and all the kind of the protests going across middle america during the great depression things that i think lovecraft was pretty oblivious to he's saying there's really is a an uprising we're surrounded that's that's happening like there's a revolutionary potential here and it may not end up being good in in an objective sense but it's real it's something that's really there 
Um, and so I really like this letter. This is, uh, what's the date for this? Yeah, again, September 22nd. I, it was written sometime before, but that's when Howard received it. So anyways, as we see here, I'm going to close up now. As we see, uh, their, their conversation gets a little heated at this point. Um, and it's going to continue to be heated for a while. So we'll see more of what they say in the next, epi in the next episode. So I'll cover in the next episode, October uh, 32 to, I think, the end of 32. Yeah. Because I, I think we're coming to the end of volume one of, of this. Yeah, until December 32. So only a few months. Um, but it's another 100-page chunk. But it takes us to the end of, of 32. So that'll be episode five. And then we'll have four episodes where I'll cover volume two. And that will be 33 to the, to the end of Howard's life. So anyways, uh, uh, I guess that's it for now. Let me know what you think of these issues. If you've read these letters, I would really appreciate your feedback. There's a lot I skipped over here and a lot I summarized because to go point by point would take hours. And I don't think there's that much reason to do that. I just want to... Give you what I my overall reflections on these these letters. I've taken, of course, much more detailed notes, but I'm just going to give you the highlights as I see it and the overall trajectory of their conversation. Um, and I think the ideas that that interest me the most. Um, so, the I think these letters really show Howard to be someone who's really really thoughtful and interesting. Someone I'd rather have a beer with. I mean, Lovecraft wouldn't have a beer with me, right? For probably lots of reasons. But anyways. Uh, that's it for now. Um, thanks for listening. I will see you next time. Once in the saddle I used to go gay It first led to drinking And then to cards playing I'm shot in the breast And I'm dying today let six jolly cowboys come carry my coffin. Let six pretty gals.